Welcome to Between Two Lips, a podcast dedicated to all things pelvic health for women. I'm your host, Kim Bobney, the Vagina Coach, and I am excited to share with you information from leading pelvic health professionals from around the world, stories from women at all life stages who have faced struggles and successes, and of course, I share a little about my own pelvic health journey as well. There is too much silent suffering associated with the female pelvis, and I am on a mission to change that. It's time we talk openly about a part of the body that deserves a whole lot more attention than it gets. Join me each week for casual and candid conversations that will both inform and inspire you to optimize your pelvic health for life. Welcome to another episode of Between Two Lips. I'm your host, Kim Vapni, the Vagina Coach. And in this week's episode, I am joined by Dr. Terry Robertson-Elder. She's a physical therapist in private practice in North Carolina, where she specializes in pelvic health and oncology care. She's an educator and holds a faculty instructor position at GSU's Department of Physical Therapy and is a continuing education provider for Pelvic Global. Dr. Robertson Elder is a board-certified clinical specialist in women's health physical therapy, a certified lymphedema therapist, pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach, a Pilates and Kripalu yoga instructor, and holds multiple manual therapy and advanced practice certifications. Most importantly, Terry is a movement optimist who is passionate about her mission to destigmatize and demystify pelvic health. She also calls herself a crotch crusader, which I absolutely love. We had a great chat about her journey into pelvic health, but also her journey with being treated as a pelvic health patient and the introduction to being diagnosed with prolapse and what she now has recommended to the clinic she went to to change things for the better. She and I talked about pessaries. We talked about all the different types of prolapse, how prolapse is graded, the changes to the recent changes to the grading of prolapse, which I hadn't heard and was really grateful to learn. And we also talked about the restrictions that are commonly placed on people when they receive a prolapse diagnosis, the no lifting over X weight or no heavy lifting, no running, no jumping, no deep squats. We talked about how we think things should be done differently, who some of our teachers have been, and some strategies that can help you to get back to doing whatever it is that you want to do, even if you have a prolapse. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hi, Terry. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for Thanks for speaking with me. Yeah. I've been looking forward to it for a while, and I've been following you for years, so I'm super excited to, to be able to speak with you. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you reached out to share. And, and the first thing that jumped out to me was the crotch crusader. I think that's one of the best lines I've heard in a while. So can you tell us how you became a crotch crusader? Sure. Like where the actual name came from or like my journey to... <laughs> yeah, kind of your journey and, and then how the name came along will, will be part of that story. So how you came to be where you are now. Sure. So, you know, I'm a physical therapist. I've been practicing for eight years. I was a massage therapist, yoga teacher, Pilates teacher before that. And I always had an interest in pelvic health, although I didn't know that I was necessarily going to go this route. But I was actually in an oncology specialty center and doing oncology care in outpatient and got really interested in pelvic health. And so I've been practicing pelvic health for five years now. And 
when I found the specialty, it just, it, it was like, oh, this is it. This is, this is my jam. And the name Crouch Crusader, I actually, I think I heard it in a Susie Gronsky podcast. I think she came up with it. So I will credit her. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's, I love it. I think it's great. So it, I know the, the hashtag pelvic mafia was used for quite a while on social media, sort of back in the, I say the early days of, of when social media and pelvic health was starting to be talked about. I don't see it used quite as much, but I think Crotch Crusader could also have another good hashtag. <laughs> we could start another following. Tagging it. You're right. I have it in my Instagram bio. I should, I'll start hashtagging it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. The nudge. Yeah, totally. Cool. So I want to start with a big part of your practice, which is prolapse. And I, I, I would argue most pelvic health physical therapists will have obviously a lot to do with with prolapse. That's one of the more common pelvic floor conditions. But can you talk about what prolapse is and what are the most common types that you see in your practice? Or maybe even the, what does the research say are the more common types? Oh, that's a big, that's a big one to start with. Yeah, that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll break it down. But so I definitely got interested in it, it early on in pelvic health was kind of a passion for me specifically because of my own experience, if I might share with being newly postpartum, newly in the specialty and being diagnosed with my own prolapse. I was only seven or eight weeks postpartum. I was very new. I, I came into the clinic just for, I didn't have any symptoms, just for regular, you know, postnatal rehab. And she gave me a, a handout with all the things I was never supposed to do again, run, jump, lift, squat with my hips below my knees. And I was devastated. And I thought it was a death sentence to not to mince words, really. And it really put me on a path to want to know everything that I could about it. And it's been quite a journey to get to where I am now, reading every piece of literature I could find, taking every course that I could find. And I absolutely love helping people because it is so common. And you asked me what it is to begin with. <laughs> I didn't yeah. define it yet. But essentially, it is the pelvic organs, for pelvic organ prolapse specifically, the pelvic organs pressing into and sometimes coming out of the vagina. So there is rectal prolapse, which is a different thing. But for pelvic organ prolapse, POP, which is usually shortened to prolapse, specifically usually refers to a vaginal prolapse. So the there's an anatomic definition and there's a clinical definition. And there really is a difference that I like to share with people because there are, there are essentially four different stages and stage one and two are considered more mild. Stage one now, which is basically just a slight bit of organ descent. And if I can show on my little model here, so I have a little crochet model. So it can be coming from the top down, the bladder prolapsing. It can be the rectovaginal wall, the wall between the rectum and the vagina that's kind of pushing in. And it can be coming from the top down, either the apex of the vagina, or if the uterus is present, then, then you can also have a uterine prolapse. But it's essentially considered an apical prolapse or, or something coming down from the, the, the ceiling, basically, you can think of. Right. So the milder stage one prolapse now is considered normal. 
it has been re kind of classified. And the new definition that's actually just recently come out last year, the new clinical definition of prolapse, the descent needs to be at least to the vaginal opening or beyond to be considered a clinical definition of prolapse. So someone might have an anatomic descent. They might have stage one or or a, so stage two is one centimeter. The prolapse is coming to within one centimeter of the opening or one centimeter beyond. So stage two can be either within or outside. And so some people do break that down into like 2A and 2B, but not to get too, you know, lost in the weeds. Essentially, you know, the reason why that definition has changed is because over the years we've gathered so much research and found that a great majority of women, even young women, even women who are nulliparous, who are, who have never had a baby, 50% have at least stage one prolapse. And so the urogynecological community finally has kind of shifted things after many years of kind of grappling with this definition and has kind of redefined though that mild prolapse is normal or at least acceptable amount of support. And having that mild prolapse does not necessarily mean that it will progress. It doesn't mean that you are at any more risk of having a worse prolapse than someone who has no prolapse at all. Okay. I know that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and before we go into, cause I don't also ask about common types, but I, before we go there, I want to expand on that a little, cause this is, is new for me as well. So I've always, at least in North America, we, as you said, there's four stages. Early stage was sort of just, you know, as you say, just a partial bulge, sometimes often, very often asymptomatic. Stage two, I used to be that it was two centimeters away from the opening. Stage three was at the opening. Stage four was out the opening. So that's kind of what it used to be, at least from the people that I've been taught by and and led by. So that now has changed, if I understand correctly. Stage one is kind of considered just most many people have it. Stage two, one centimeter above or below. So you could technically have a bulge slightly outside the entrance in a stage two. Is that right? Yes. Interesting. And that's per, and there are different staging criteria. There's the Bain Walker scale, but for the pop Q scale, it is, that's what the criteria is. And then then what would stage three and four be then? So stage three is from one centimeter beyond the opening to within. So you have to check the total vaginal length. And then basically it's anything from within two centimeters of what that total eversion would be. And then stage four is complete eversion. Got it. Okay. And you mentioned the, the, like how, I guess I just asked the question, how is it graded? So how, when you go in, what sort of do you have a, is there a tool that is used? Is it manual palpation? Are we referring to, you mentioned a scale? So sorry, a scale just meaning a system of measurement, not necessarily a tool, but it's measured with observation and with the person who is being examined bearing down fully for six to eight seconds. You can either use a half speculum, but there's a way that 
you know, we kind of screen it in pelvic physio quite often, just with a gloved finger. And we press, for those of you who are listening, if you head over to YouTube, you'll be able to see the video where there is some, some demonstration. So you press up and you have the individual bear down as much as they can. And then if you see things descend, either, you know, however much they descend, and then you can also press the tissues down this way, and then you can palpate deeply and feel either the, the cervix or, or if it's not present, the apex of the vagina, and then you can measure how much it descends. There are sticks that you can get. They're called pop cue sticks that have little centimeter measurements on them. And that's how you measure the the maximum descent. Of, right. Uh, yeah. And the pop cue is essentially, as you meant, sort of the grading scale that is used to evaluate. Is that correct? So it's not as much of a grading scale. It's it it's there is the stages that they use. They use the staging words for the pop cue. Okay. And that is really when they came up with that in 90, I believe it was 1996, they used expert opinion because they didn't have any data to kind of come up with that. And, you know, for, for deciding what was stage one, what was stage two. And really it's, it's, you, you measure and it goes on a grid and it's how, you know, surgeons will do pre-op and post-op to basically describe what the anatomy is and, and how much it descends with bearing down. Okay. And just for those that were listening, if you, if you can't see the video, The first one you were talking about, you were putting your finger and you as a clinician putting the finger in and pressing against sort of the the anterior or the front wall of the vagina to see the uterus and to see the back wall. And then this and then you also pressed on the back wall and would look in and see what's happening on the front wall with the uterus and with the uterus. Is that correct? Right. right? Yep. Yep. That's how it tends to be done in pelvic physio and quite often now more so. A half speculum is being used. You can also use like a tongue depressor that's like wrapped in a a glove and kind of use that to compress the tissues up and down as you see what's going on to give you a better view. Yeah. Okay. So with this information then, with this kind of new classification, something that I recommend is that people see a pelvic floor physical therapist once a year as a check-in. And part of that purpose, I I think there's value in knowing if there is something we need to kind of monitor or manage or what have you. So, and this is mainly the reason if there's early stage prolapse, I personally would want to know that because I would want to be able to come in and do whatever intervention strategies I need to, to prevent that from getting worse. I've also heard on the flip side, more so for people who've been working maybe with a medical provider who haven't been told because a lot of people also don't want to provide that information because they think it might alarm the patient or create issue. So I, I can see the logic on both sides. Mm-hmm. Where do you sit in that that field? What would you that's recommend? A, that's a really good question. So for one, I do think that it's important to ask people when they come in what sorts of evaluations they want, whether or not they want to be screened for organ descent, what it might mean if we find something, because we know symptoms and anatomy don't always match up, right? right. So, you know, most, I, th- I think most people want as much information, that's why they're coming in. But I think there is really powerful how information is presented. And right. so I think that's a big part of why there has been the shift in the clinical diagnosis of prolapse, because 
Those with stage one, per the POPQ, stage one organ descent, it's not known to be progressive. And so essentially it is really redefining as normal. That doesn't mean that if someone comes in and they have stage one prolapse and they're symptomatic that we're going to say, nope, you're normal. You don't need to do anything. Shoo them out the door and completely disregard them. Absolutely not. We still look at their symptoms. We look at other drivers for what's going on and certainly help them and screen them for things that are meaningful, in my opinion. So I I don't think that finding stage one prolapse that's asymptomatic on evaluation is necessarily something that needs to be alarm the patient about. I would definitely tell them, I'm seeing, you know, this amount of movement, this is considered to be within normal, the normal realm. But there are some other tests and measures that I do that I think are more impactful that do show the risk of potentially having some issues in the future, how pressure is being managed, some other measurements that we take called GH plus PB, which is a part of the POPQ measurement system. And those measurements do actually give us a lot of information for, one, whether or not someone might be more symptomatic or whether or not they have a higher risk for developing or worsening prolapse in the future. So I tell people what I find. I try to offer it in a non-pathologizing way. I definitely don't give that handout. (laughs) I created actually a and out that I'm happy to share with you and anyone that, that might want it that has more evidence-based information. I, I want to come back to your story, but I'm, I'm going to ask one more thing before we go there. And you mentioned GH plus PB. Can you mm-hmm. talk about what that measurement is? Because it does get referred to a lot, especially with prolapse and, and increased risks, depending on what your score, is that the right word to use there, would be on that? Yeah, what the measurement is, so I here are the little POPQ sticks. GH refers to genital hiatus, and what that means is the opening of the most superficial muscles. PB is perineal body. The measurement of GH plus PB together is basically the levator hiatus or the opening in the deeper pelvic floor muscles. So both measurements are important for different things. And the way that we measure is very simply, we hold up the POPQ stick, we measure from the urethral opening to the the base of the vaginal opening, and from the base of the, that's for the GH, Mm -hmm. hold these superficial pelvic floor muscles, basically. And then perineal body is from the base of the vaginal opening to the anus, basically the center of the anus. We measure at rest. We have the patient bear down maximally. And then looking at those measurements, there are, there's all kinds of research on what numbers are considered to be higher risk for both symptoms and risk of developing prolapse in the future. Great. Thanks for explaining that. So coming back to your story, you went, you went in just because you were told or you believed that you should have an assessment postpartum, and you didn't have any symptoms. And then you were given a brochure that had all of these limitations that you should never be able to do, I'm assuming because they found a prolapse, correct? Correct. Yeah. And that then sort of sets off. Grade one. It was grade one to two. She kind of, you know, gave me, she wasn't sure. 
And I did go for, I think, seven months later to a urogynecologist to get a pessary fit. And she's like, you have, there's no prolapse. There's nothing. So it is, you know, there is no data. I would love to have more research on that early postnatal period and how much, because there's so much more tissue extensibility. I mean, I had a vaginal delivery. There's a lot going on. And the fact that stage one, we know, is you know, now considered to be a normal or, or at least acceptable range amount right. of, yeah. of organ support, then, you know, really have we been pathologizing women with mild prolapse for so long, restricting them, telling them don't lift weights, don't go, you know, do all these things that you need to do. But guess what? We need to actually do these things. We need to lift strollers. We need to lift. I mean, I was thinking like I have this, you know, 10 pound baby now in a 25 pound car seat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when he's going to only get bigger. So what does what does that mean? But anyway, just, you know, these limitations and restrictions are really well-intentioned. They're meant to help save people from mm-hmm. this thing. But keeping people, restricting people from activity, I think just makes us weaker. It makes our tissues mm-hmm. more susceptible to damage. And so, you know, the irony is, is so painful because, you know, people go out, they don't exercise, they don't do all these things. And then they have to go, you know, move something one day and ooh, then they feel, you know, then they have a symptomatic organ descent after that. And, you know, it can become kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because as I, I, I myself personally am postmenopause and and work with a lot of people in that sort of perimenopause, postmenopause transition, and r- becoming more aware of the the vasomotor piece, the bone health piece, the muscle loss piece, postmenopause, and I just think of all the people who have been either told to restrict, not lift, not do impact, not this, or who have kind of self-prescribed them those restrictions because self-prescribed to themselves because they were afraid of leaking or because they were afraid of making their prolapse worse or didn't like the symptoms or whatever reason. It just, it further compounds the already increased risk we have, especially moving into that phase of our life. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we know the benefits of exercise are well-established, The right. like you said, the bone health, the heart health, the mental health. And, you know, you have to weigh all the risks and benefits. And that's certainly what I talk to people about, depending on, you know, what they want to do. You know, it's most of the people that come in just want to be able to kind of like go about their lives. But I do have people who are higher level who want to be, you know, lift heavier weights, who want to be able to run and things like that. And, you know, we don't have a lot of really good longitudinal longitudinal Mm -hmm. data or we don't have good long-term studies Mm -hmm. on the impacts to running per se. But what we do have is a lot of good research on intra-abdominal pressure. And basically what a lot of these studies show is that there are no completely safe or unsafe activities. And the way that someone does something, even between, you know, even the same person doing the same movement, it can be different you know, depending on how they do it. So that is really what's important, not necessarily these blanket, you know, recommendations. Yeah. I I reflect back to when I was first starting out. And at the time, there was really not a lot of fitness professionals 
in this field. And I was working and kind of collaborating with pelvic health physios, and we didn't have a ton of research at the time. And and the the general consensus at the time was there was a good and a bad list of exercises and, you know, no twists, no planks, no crunches, no this, no heavy lifting, no jumping. And and so when I think back to when I was first getting this word out there, it very it was very much like the brochure you had, very restrictive. And then forming a second business with two other women, one was a pelvic health physio, one was a trainer like myself, and the three of us would have very healthy <laughs> debates about crunches or not and rolling to your side and not. And and I always seemed to be the one who was saying, but it just doesn't make sense that we should, just because we've given birth or just because we're doing this or just because we're older, that we should not be able to do a forward flexion movement in our life anymore. That doesn't, so why are we not kind of training for the resilience in that movement? And so anyway, it was always that dance. And then Anthony Lowe was a really big catalyst for shifting that that conversation, which I'm forever grateful for and still is. And so that was, I think, a kind of a turning point within the last like five to seven-ish years of opening up that conversation of it's we, we absolutely can and we absolutely should be doing all of these quote-unquote unsafe exercises that we were told along the way, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we definitely, I think, you know, a lot of that early advice was, again, came from a really good place meant to be protective, mm -hmm. but it was restrictive. And I think it has had negative unintended consequences. And, you know, we don't necessarily go completely the other direction, although there are some people who definitely, yeah. you know, want to say, no, you can do whatever you want. And and really, it's up to the individual to to decide risk versus benefit. But I think with progressive loading, you can get to very safely lift weights that can strengthen your muscles, strengthen your bones, have all the, the and, and even some impact activity with the right, you know, support, especially with the right training, with being progressive, you know, can be an incredible tool for people. Yeah. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. So I had asked earlier, and it's not, it, it's not that relevant, but it kind of is just out of curiosity. What are the most common types of prolapse that you see in your practice? In my practice, I, I tend to see yeah. a lot of anterior vaginal wall descent. Some people call it cystocele, which is the bladder descending. And I'm not sure if I've just had a lot of those lately, <laughs> but mm -hmm. it seems to be the most common. Although certainly, certainly I think that as far as you know, rates in the general population. I haven't seen one being necessarily more than another. Yeah. They, yeah. They yeah. happen equally. And and quite commonly, there may be descent in all three compartments. Right. Quite commonly, especially when there's descent of either the uterus or the top of the vagina when the uterus isn't present, it kind of pulls things with it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. These are common. And yeah. So in terms of the treatment, I, I really want to go, like no pun intended, heavier into the lifting and the impact. But before we do, when we when you have somebody who is symptomatic, who is potentially looking and wants to do the higher impact activity, wants to eliminate symptoms, what sort of treatment? So we talked about pessaries. That's one thing that I want to explore. Where do you start? Is pessary the first thing or are there other things that you explore first? Certainly I mean, the first thing is just educating people on general, you know, generally what they can do for symptom management. 
how to, you know, do elevated hips pose, legs up the wall, really start with the basics, help them learn how to navigate their own symptoms. So it could be that they're more symptomatic at the end of the day, taking breaks throughout the day. So, so a lot of kind of lifestyle advice and education. Certainly constipation management is a huge one to prevent the bearing down, just to keep everything moving. Talking to people about how they're going to the bathroom is a big one. And then, you know, checking out, you know, what's going on with their pelvic floor muscles as far as strength, coordination. Are they, do they have an automatic contraction with a cough? And if not, kind of trying to retrain that so they can learn how to support, better support their organs. But pessaries are a big part of the treatment. But we certainly also look at hormonal health. We may recommend that they seek care to get some topical estrogen or other topicals that may help. And that certainly can be a big driver of symptoms when there is a very mild prolapse. So the the health of the mucosa is really, really important, especially if you're going to bring on any kind of device like a pessary. Definitely right. needs to have good tissue health. So, and then working, we gradually will work towards, you know, looking at what's happening in standing, look at what's happening with exercise, pelvic floor muscle training, definitely, but whether or not that has as much of an impact as all the other things put together. Yeah. Okay. And, and so let's talk then about pessaries and there's, there's many different sizes and shapes and you as a physio fit pessaries, which is not yet globally accepted. A lot of times it may be a urogynecologist or nurse continence advisor who is fitting the pessaries. What I like about the fact that if I think I absolutely believe that all physios should be able to fit because I think it will eliminate a lot of the weight and a lot of the frustration that is currently associated with finding that right size and shape. So how do you, where do you start with the pessary conversation? Sure. So, so a pessary is an internal device. I, I, the way that I describe it to people, to clients is it is a kind of like an orthotic that you would put in your shoe, but it's worn vaginally. I also like to say sports bra for your pelvic organs is a nice one. And they are medical grade silicone devices. There are lots of different shapes and sizes. So I will recommend them. Basically, anyone can get a pessary who stage one to stage four. There are definitely certain factors that can contribute to a more successful pessary fit and a less successful fit. And I can talk about that more in a moment. But I'd love to show you some different. I have a bunch right here if you'd like mm -hmm. to see different, different types. So this is the ring. This is the most common type. And the ring can really be used for all compartments, but it tends to be more so for a mild, milder stage one, stage two. It tends to work a little bit better for anterior vaginal wall just because of the way the, the way the organs sit. So it's sort of like a, it's like a skinny donut that you would fold in half like a taco, basically. Right. Fold it like a taco, little bit of lube, insert, and it sits up on top of the pelvic floor muscles. Mm -hmm. 
And so if someone does have like a, a muscle injury, a wider levator hiatus, and so that's where that GH plus PV measurement comes in, that corresponds to a wider measurement. Someone may not be as good of a fit for the ring. But typically it is the first one that's tried. I think around 70% or something are able to be fit successfully with a ring. So it's the softest one. It's the easiest one on the mucosa and it can stay in for like four months. Some people may even leave it in longer depending, but this one does not have to be self-managed. So this is really a, a better one if someone like doesn't want to have to deal with anything. It can stay in. You technically could even have intercourse with it in. Many people choose not to. So I do like to teach people to take theirs out if they can. Right. The next most common probably is the cube. And so the cube has suction on six sides, and this can be used for basically any stage or any grade, but it has to be self-managed. It cannot be left in during intercourse. Most remove, most recommend to remove nightly, although... Hopefully we can get more data, but some, some, you know, one of the big educators for pessary fittings, she thinks that it's the in and the out every night that can be a little abrasive to tissues. And so there, in some, are recommendations just to take it out a few times a week. We really need better data for those types of recommendations. But some people wear these even just for exercise. They'll put them for exercise, remove it. But you do have to take care with removing them because you have to break the, the suction on all sides. You can't just pull straight down from the string. And are you talking, are you referring to Gaynor Morgan? Gaynor recommends, she is, she, I have taken her course. She's not who I'm speaking about. She okay. recommends nightly. That's what the manufacturers recommend. Yep. Yeah, Gaynor I interviewed on the podcast as well, too. So I'll, I'll link to that. Yeah, I love Gaynor. So there'll be links to hers as well. So you can, it goes a little bit more depth into into pessaries. But yeah, cool. I Carry on. hers right here that she yeah. invented, actually. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. She's fantastic. And then also have the, the Gellhorn. And this one is in its packaging. But this one has suction on the, the top. And it sits in, this one is... You can use it for different types, but it's really great for uterine prolapse. And then there are also certain types of pessaries that are really more for urinary incontinence. They don't work. They're not quite as effective just because I'll show you this little knob, which you place it, insert it, and you have to kind of get it rotated around so that the knob is hitting the urethra. And so when it rotates and the knob slips off of the urethra, then there can be kind of leaking again. But there are some over-the-counter, at least in the States. I don't know if you guys have these in Canada, but we have the, the Impressa mm -hmm. and Revive, which are over-the-counter. The, this is the Impressa. It's single-use. It goes in, expands pushes on the sides of the vaginal walls, pushes on the urethra, which helps support the urethra. And then the Revive, if you'd like me to show that as well. And this one is a multi-use, has a little applicator, as well as the, the Impressa has an applicator. And you press it, it expands vaginally. It's quite a different, different shape than the Impressa. 
And this is what supports the urethra. And then it just can be pulled out the string, placed back in the applicator, washed, of course, placed back in the applicator. And this is just used as needed. So I quite often will suggest to people to try the over-the-counter ones just to see how they feel about having something there to get a little bit of confidence with manipulating a vaginal tool and especially if someone has associated urinary incontinence. But most people, I, I feel, are much more open to the pessaries now than it used to be. I think because people are realizing that surgeries are not are, are wonderful for some. Not everyone wants one. And certainly it's good to even try a pessary before you do surgery. And there's one really, really important reason that I've seen sometimes postoperatively people come in following a prolapse surgery and they are leaking like they never had before because it uncovers this occult stress urinary incontinence that they didn't know they had because the urethra was, was being kinked by the prolapse coming down. Organs are put back into place and then they're leaking. And once you've had surgery, depending on the type of surgery, you may it may not be a good idea to use a pessary if there's mesh there. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an important point. I love that. And and the the poise you can get in Canada. The okay. revive, I've had a few people who have been able to order it through Amazon into Canada as well too. So exactly as you said, I do recommend that people at least give that a try. It's a it's an inexpensive way to to see and and there's also a lot of cool innovation that's happening in the pessary world. So 3D printing and, you know, imaging that will be specific to your anatomy. I think there's some some interesting things coming along the along the way. Yeah. And there are a couple of over-the-counter products that are coming out as well that are meant for organ support, not just for urinary incontinence. Yeah, there's some there's some great things coming out. And, you know, if I say nothing else about pessaries, I do want people to know that they're not just for symptom management. They can help remodel the architecture over with consistent use. They can, the GH or the genital hiatus can really come in because it lifts the pelvic organs off of the pelvic floor. Pelvic floor can function more effectively. You can work on your strength and all of that. But tissues, ligaments, fascia can shorten, can remodel, and many people need either a smaller or a different type of pessary when they come back. And people often, after many years, may not even need a pessary. I'm so glad you said that because I hear from so many people that their concern with using a pessary is that it's a crutch and that they're going to become reliant or dependent on it. And exactly as you said, it, it really can actually improve the function and benefit. It helps improve some of your symptoms as well. But I, I love the way that you explained that. It's so important. Great. Yeah. And, and people are concerned about that. And, you know, one of the other metaphors that I, I really like to use is when people have issues with eyesight, you know, we have different choices. You can wear glasses, which is like an external support. Like there's shorts that we there that are made for helping kind of support things. Or you can wear contacts, which is like the pessary. Or you can get the LASIK surgery, you know, mm -hmm. and often you might want to try the glasses and the contacts before you go to the LASIK. Totally. That's such a good analogy. 
And so sometimes you have the LASIK and then you still need to wear the glasses, right? Yes, yes, yes. So with when when you're fitting, then you start out typically with a ring, and as you mentioned, that's the one that is fairly likely to be successful. If it wasn't, could you know that within that first session? So when like when you go to your gynecologist, oftentimes people don't have as much time. When they see a pelvic floor physical therapist, they typically have longer treatment mm-hmm. sessions or longer appointment times. So could you theoretically, if needed? put one in and know fairly quickly if that was going to be the right one or not, and then potentially try another one? Sure. Yes, absolutely. So I have, you know, multiple sizes of each pessary. I have, you know, I only keep the top, you know, three that I would use that, that, well, four, that really will fit like 95% of individuals. Mm-hmm. And if I need a specialty one, I'll order it. But for the most part, yes, we we have a lot more time. We see people more frequently too. So if someone is coming in and they've got, you know, a, a couple of weeks scheduled, we can tweak things. But the way that I kind of, we check to make sure we do a fit and there's different ways to fit for different pessaries, depending on what's going on. And we have an idea of what size we'll put that size pessary in, and then we'll have the person stand up, do a bunch of jumps. I have a bunch of heavy weights. They'll lift some heavy weights. They'll go avoid their bladder, make sure that they can void, see if they can feel it. I'll also have them, you know, reach and and feel. And, and often they can feel kind of where, you know, where the pessary is coming down. And I'll have them just, you know, especially in the first couple of weeks, they want to go and kind of just push things up even if they feel it coming down. And then after a few weeks, typically, even just a few weeks, things can kind of support, start supporting a little bit better. So certainly if it's continuing to be expelled, then we would want to try something probably with suction like the ring or the gelhorn. The cube or the gelhorn have the suction. Right. But I just find the ring is so much easier for people to put in to take out. There are sometimes, though, I, if someone does have a very wide levator hiatus or they have a very short total vaginal length, if they've had a hysterectomy that where the cervix was not spared or they've had a previous surgery, then they're probably not going to be a good candidate for the ring. So there are some things that we would look at and think about where we might not try a ring to begin with. But it is so great that, you know, people are coming in more often. We have more time with them. And I do think that that's why one of the reasons why, you know, physios are really well suited to to offer this in clinic. Yeah. 1000%. So I want to shift over and and sort of end our conversation on the weightlifting and impact activity. You and I are on the same page. Let's build the tolerance, the progressive loading. It's a very that's one of the principles of fitness even to is progressive loading. So you've got weights in your office and pessaries we can do it sometimes with or without pessaries. So how do you help people get that confidence? So people may be coming to you who have been told that they can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, or maybe they don't have that knowledge, but they do want to be able to run or lift or, you know, do not be limited in their activity. So how do you get them there? So good question. It, It depends on the person, where they are, where they want to get to. And then of course, what we find in the evaluation really give them the information to help them weigh the risk and benefit. But building people progressive programs, you know, for instance, I had a woman who came in recently 
with a new prolapse. She's she's menopausal. She hiked like 2,000 miles last year. She hiked like the PCT. I mean, she's, this woman is very, very fit. And, you know, her prolapse happened while she was on a hike. Hmm. So can we say that her prolapse happened because she was hiking. hiking all those miles? We can't. She built progressively up to that. There are other things, you know, that were happening for her. And she is... I just fit her last week with the pessary, but even before she had her pessary, she was already back up to walking. I think she was hiked, hiked maybe did a 12-mile hike, and she was managing her symptoms with when she would feel the bulge. Now, hers was grade or, or stage three, but it didn't always sit out. She she was mostly mostly, you know, fairly reasonable as far as her symptoms went. But she was able to really manage her symptoms without the pessary. But she wanted to go ahead and get the pessary so she could have that support because she's about to hit the Appalachian Trail and be out for weeks and weeks at a time. And she knows that she'll have her ring in and she won't have to worry about it, taking it in and out every night. So that was, you know, another thing for her why I, you know, why we chose that one. So the cube might not have been as good for her taking it in and out when she's like in the woods. Yeah, yeah. As far as exercise, you know, I, you know, helped guide her back to 12-mile hikes because she was already doing 20-mile hikes. But someone else, I might, you know, give them a program that was, you know, went out a little bit further and was really gradual. And then, you know, with weightlifting, I often will assess in standing, see what's happening with, you know, pressure management see what's happening with pelvic floor strength, coordination, and then gradually build from there. And, you know, offering to people that they are lifting 10, 15, 20 pounds kind of in their day-to-day and that, you know, we need to make people's training harder than everyday life. So finding ways to, to build the program and give people confidence in managing their own symptoms and, and knowing, you know, how their body is moving is so powerful. I do often recommend like the pop-up lifting program if people, you know, don't want to sign up for a whole series of, of you know, because it's expensive to come to clinic and there takes a lot of time. So there are some at-home programs that are really, really good. But for the most part, it's, yeah, like you said, progressive loading over time, building that confidence, learning how to manage symptoms, and then knowing that you have that organ support with a device can be, you know, so empowering as well. Mm-hmm. When you talk about pressure management, just for people that may not be familiar with that term, so we're talking about intra-abdominal pressure. Can you explain explain what is what is pressure management? Sure. So basically, intra-abdominal pressure is the pressure from if you imagine the abdo- the abdomen, the core muscles around the front, the the muscles in the back, your diaphragm on top, and then your pelvic floor muscles on bottom, those those muscles all coordinate to manage pressure. So when we cough, (coughs) our diaphragm descends fast and the pelvic floor also has to contract to support the pelvic organs. So basically when we talk about pressure management, it's how we're really looking at, we're looking at a lot of things, but one of the big things is, 
Is the pelvic floor coming on when it needs to be? How well is it able to support and manage those forces? And then we do also look at, you know, what's going on up above. If someone is doing, especially if like, say they're weightlifting, you know, are they taking a big breath and bearing down when they, you know, lift the weight? So there are a lot of different strategies for breathing, for, you know, your position, what is happening at the pelvic floor that helps you coordinate all those pieces together, basically to offer your organs the support that they need to be able to do those do those movements. Is there a breath strategy that you prefer? I, I mean, a, a lot of the sort of retraining philosophies, if, even if you go back to Julie Weeb's piston, it's about an exhale, blow before you go, exhale just before exertion, sort of as a starting point, then exhaling with exertion. But then there's the opposite, especially in the heavy lifting, where there's often a big, huge breath where there's, and, there, and sometimes with weight belts, they're breathing into the belt to create more pressure, which arguably is creating more stability, right? So there's the, that's the kind of the part that's tough to hear is like, well, I can't, I can't increase pressure because it's bad for my prolapse, but I, I could potentially be creating more stability if I increase pressure, <laughs> right? So it's a bit of a dichotomy there. Yeah. So increased pressure does increase stability for the spine. And that is the whole point. And that is why those weightlifters are wearing those belts is because they want to maximize their spinal stiffness so that they can lift more weight. There are ways to safely use weight belts or there are, there are ways to improve safety, I should say, with using weight belts, especially for those who have concerns about or they do have a pelvic organ prolapse. But there, there honestly, there is no one breath strategy that works for everyone. We have to test and retest. It depends on the lift, to be honest. It depends on whether or not someone's using a, a belt, and it depends on the weight. So blow as you go, which is the exhale on exertion, is commonly a great technique for people. Probably not, though, if they want to lift you know, anywhere near a one rep max if someone is really going for those heavier lifts. So what I like to try is a sub-maximal breath, so take a big breath in, and then let some off the top and hold that while they do the lift. And quite often, someone is able to, with a sub-maximal breath, they're able to more effectively contract the pelvic floor and hold it through the lift. And there's a lot of different mechanisms in there, but trying different things, feeling what you feel. And I have people feel themselves externally or even internally sometimes while they're doing different breath strategies with weights, or I will feel while they're doing, you know, overhead lifting a heavy weight, things like that. Because sometimes people bear down when they're breathing out. And holding the breath has kind of been villainized. And doing a Valsalva, which is actually more like clearing your ears, is different than bearing down. So I do try to make sure that people are not bearing down if they're doing a breath hold and really just looking at what their goals are, what kind of lifting they're doing, especially if they're a higher level athlete. And how do you make it safer to use a belt? Yeah. So the really the easiest way is you don't, when you put on the belt, you don't just tighten the ever living crap you have it a little bit looser that, so that you can at least fit like two or three fingers into it. And then when you breathe in, you expand into the belt. That makes sense. That makes sense. 
In terms of, you know, kind of wrapping up here, but in terms of, of the research that I've seen, like Lori Forner has done some research with regards to heavy lifting. There's also been the, the oh, heavy lifting is bad, but running is fine. And, you know, and then comparing the two and is that really true? And it's not. And and it, it comes down to, as you were mentioning before, that it's, it's not the exercise. It's that person's execution of that exercise on that given day at that point in their life with all of the other factors that, that we have to consider, right? So I don't think we can blanket statement say, you know, and we and we don't have the longitudinal data, but heavy lifting or, and, and what is heavy lifting? Like 80% of one rep max, but not, not many people know what their one rep max is. And what's heavy to one person is not heavy to another person, right? So there's all these factors that we do need to consider. But is there a recommendation of, you know, we have some evidence that shows heavy lifting from a occupation. So somebody working, carrying heavy loads every day for hours, five days a week, that's an increased risk. So would we want to tailor our programs to be, I mean, obviously nobody's going to be training for that many hours, but what would you say there? Yeah. So I love that you brought up that point because a lot of people do think, you know, oh, heavy lifting is bad, but actually like there is a difference between heavy lifting during a workout and heavy lifting occupationally for your work. And there is an increased risk with heavy occupational lifting. So for those individuals, though, I would want to train them to be able Mm -hmm. to do what they need to do for their work. Look at the strategies that they're using. And, you know, listen, I know people want those blanket recommendations. They want the do and the don't list because it's easier. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easier to say on social media, but, you know, it's just not, I think it's not helpful for people. And people put so many things that are good for our health in that don't category. So, you know, I'm so glad that you're doing this and that we're, you know, helping to get this message out. Yeah. Yeah. Bottom line is we all, especially fitness professionals, fitness professionals love the protocol. Tell me how many sets, tell me how many reps and how frequently, you know, the fit principle, right? Frequency, intensity, time and type. And I, I even just general fitness, we just, it's not, that easy anymore. There's, uh, it's, it, it can be easy. And, and I think a lot of times we, we complicate it by adding in so many other things to think about. And social media is like, every day you probably walk away from social media saying, oh my gosh, I might have gut health problems. I might have bone health challenges. I might have anyway, it kind of becomes overwhelming. But, and that would, that's what I mean by kind of clouding and, and giving us all this extra layer to consider, which is important to know, but, but really just move, move your body, move in varied ways, change something like as Anthony Lowe says, do something different, but change your breath strategy and and see how you respond, really. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I know that not everyone can seek individualized advice. It's, you know, it's a privilege to be able to access pelvic physio. But and and the truth is, is that, you know, there are people who are probably, you know, working out on the farm who have a stage three pro- prolapse and they're not bothered by it versus, you know, someone who has a very, you know, mildly symptomatic stage one and they are, you know, constantly checking and really, really vigilant. And we do have to look at nervous system health and the whole person when we consider, you know, a plan for someone. But, you know, we do overcomplicate it a lot. And the, it's hard, though, because there are so many factors to consider. But, you know, empowering people to get out and move and not giving them a bunch of don't lists and to get out and do, you know, 
programs and get moving again is, I think, the most important thing because, you know, we know that the benefits are there. And just to quote Anthony one more time, I'll yeah. send him this episode. <laughs> yeah. And he is, he's a dear friend of mine. Actually, we're speaking next week at a conference together. I'm, oh, amazing. I'm, uh, yeah. But he, he had some brilliant quote that's, that's, you know, kind of gone viral that is, you know, we're more than our vaginas. Like, it is really important, of course. You know, I'm a crash crusader, and I know you are too. And we want to do our best to help people in this realm of pelvic health. But, like, we are more than just that. And, you know, sometimes we need to let people consider, like, what they want to do with their bodies, what they want to do with their lives. And we're more than just these parts. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and for the amazing work that you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for another episode of Between Two Lips. Thank you so much for choosing to spend part of your day with me. If you are enjoying the show, I recommend subscribing so you don't miss an episode, and I would also be grateful for a positive review. This will help get the information I share into the hands of more people who may not even know that help exists. Finally, I encourage you to take what you learn here and put it into action so that you can ensure that what you hear me and my guests share is not just lip service.